0: This is Thinking Freely with the ACLU of Maryland, the show that talks about what's happening politically in Maryland, from the courts to the streets. I'm your host, Amber Taylor. On April 20th, 2021, the jury in the Derek Chauvin trial issued a guilty verdict on all three counts over the murder of George Floyd. However, one verdict is not justice. It's simply accountability. It will not negate the fact that George Floyd's tragic killing is a part of a disturbing local and national pattern of police officers using excessive force against Black people and other people of color. The verdict will not change the fact that George Floyd will never make it home to play games with his daughter. Nor does it change the fact that George Floyd was just one of over 5,000 people killed by police since 2015. Another one of those people was Anton Black, who was killed by police in Greensboro, a small town on Maryland's eastern shore. On September 15, 2018, the 19-year-old Anton Black pleaded mommy help. And told his mother he loved her as the police forced his slight frame down and pressed his face, his chest, and his stomach on the ground for six long minutes, causing him to die from positional asphyxiation. Police, since their inception as slave patrols, were created to monitor, control, and oppress. Black communities. We must renew our convictions to create a world where the police don't have the opportunity to use violence and harassment to target Black people, and where we have community-centered approaches to public safety that create an equitable justice system. Today, we will talk to LaToya Holly, Anton Black's older sister, Davon Love, the Director of Public Policy for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, and Sonia Kumar, Senior Staff Attorney with the ACLU of Maryland, about the Derek Chauvin verdict, the work being done to get justice for Anton Black, and what we must continue to do to reform policing and create a public safety system that values and protects Black lives. So. Latoya, Devon, and Sonia, thank you so much for being on Thinking Freely today. I wanted to start off the conversation by getting your initial reactions to how you felt when the Derek Chauvin verdict came out.
1: Oh, I was like jumping up for joy, you know, because it was always in the back of my mind, that what if the jurors just didn't understand or didn't get it or, you know, if they just didn't want to do the right thing. That is something that we have a history of, again, It's just, we have so many different things that have gone on, um, in this country dealing with black people. Um, we've got, had a lot of juries, you know, that did not go our way. You know, there's an expectation that, you know, people are going to do the right thing, but there's also that sinking feeling in the back of your head, just like, oh my gosh, what if they don't, what if What if they don't? So I was ecstatic that they did the right thing because it was, as far as I'm concerned, a clear cut case. We saw everything we needed to see on the body worn camera.
2: I really agree with Latoya. And I think what's telling is how many of us were afraid that notwithstanding the overwhelming evidence, the fact that the murder was captured on video and all of the expert testimony that the jury still might not convict him. And I think that alone really says something about where we are as a country in terms of how exceptional it is to even imagine the idea of a police officer being held accountable for taking a person's life.
3: I mean, whenever I think about you know, trials of police officers who've killed black folks. I think about Derrick Bell, who's a legal scholar, one of the founders of critical race theory, who talked about the permanence of racism in America. I think a lot of times people understand racism to be like a blemish kind of aberration. But Derrick Bell believed that racism and white supremacy is central to the functioning uh, of America and American civil society. I say that because in many respects, a guilty verdict is the least amount of justice that one could ask for. And one of the things I get concerned about, you know, and, and people have a right to process these things in whatever way suits them. But I get concerned because I think what happens is that. You know, something like a guilty verdict and, and, and the excitement that I think people experience as a result of that can feed into continuing to believe in the fiction of American society as one capable of respecting the humanity of black people. And so while it's good that the family got the little bit of justice that was possible in the circumstance, my message to the larger you know, public, particularly black people, is that we should not mistake a guilty verdict for America being fundamentally different and being a society that respects the humanity of Black people, because that continues to be the case that Black people are um, outside of the scope of humanity and how the American construct is defined itself.
0: Absolutely. And one of the things I, I noticed over the course of the trial was it felt like the system bending over backwards to sacrifice itself to justify the whole institution was an overall fine. Just like this one bad little incident we're going to need the rug and then go back to normal.
3: Right. And, th- and this was a part of Derrick Bell's argument, like one of the things that he argues is that, for instance, the Brown versus Board of Education, the desegregation decision was a capitulation to Cold War politics, right? That the, America was engaged in the Cold War, the way that it was mistreating Black people didn't help in the propaganda campaign against the Soviet Union and the Cold War. Segregation had outlived its utility, right? Like white folks benefit financially from integrated institutions. And so Derrick Bell, he called it interest convergence. And as you pointed out, I think the trial and the way that the institution sacrificed Derrick Chauvin is an example of that interest convergence. It, It was as much in the interest of the institutions that perpetuate the harm against Black people for the verdict to be guilty as it was in the interest of Black people.
0: And actually, I wanted to see if y'all saw some parallels, particularly as LaToya, you and your family and they still you is seeking justice for an accountability for what happened to Anton Black. Did you see any parallels between trying to hold Thomas Webster, one of the officers who killed Anton Black, accountable and the journey that the Floyd family has gone through to get a small bit of accountability?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot of parallels. The one thing that George Floyd's family um, had in their favor was a accurate autopsy report from the medical examiner that said that it was a homicide. You know, it was actual and factual information. So that was one hurdle that they did not have to or obstacle that they didn't have to overcome as far as even getting the grand jury, you know, and getting the prosecution to go ahead and get the grand jury convened, and and then to have charges brought up against children. With Anton, you know, right now, our whole battle has been his autopsy report. His autopsy report is something that the state's attorney, Joseph Riley, is standing behind. I like to say he's hiding behind it, basically, to prevent him from doing what he knows is right, in my opinion. He's leaning on it so much that he's refused to convene a grand jury to even have Anton's case reviewed to see if a grand jury would agree to pursue criminal charges for all parties involved. So that is something that we are very passionate about, hopefully getting corrected, because we, we do want to see criminal charges brought up against the officers, Webster, Landon, and of course, Manos.
2: As LaToya said, there are such significant parallels in terms of the deaths of both George Floyd and Anton, I think what stands in stark contrast is exactly what Latoya said, which is in Anton's case, the entity that was supposed to tell us what happened, what caused his death, really distorted the facts and adopted the police narrative of what happened and blamed everything besides the actual uses of force and restraint by officers who chased Anton, tased him and then pinned him to the ground six minutes, even after he was handcuffed. And I think it is incredibly important to understand, just as Latoy is highlighting, what a huge impact that has, because what we're really talking about is Who gets to tell us what the truth is, who gets to tell us what actually happened and are they telling us what actually happened or are they providing a narrative that serves the police officers or their own interest? And the fact that, you know, the same medical examiner who concluded in Anton's case that he died of alternately. Natural causes or an accident than what took the stand for hours in defense of Derek Chauvin's killing of George Floyd, I think is really telling about the need of the work that we need to do here in Maryland and looking sort of backwards and looking ahead. Did the medical examiner even really look at the body worn camera? I've
1: never been able to fully watch it. I just, maybe one day I can, but I've heard. Bits and pieces from it. I heard my brother screaming, terrified on that video. He was scared for his life. And then you hear my brother saying he doesn't want to die, he can't breathe. The officers are so bold to think that when he said that he loved them, that he was saying it to them, he was saying it to our mother. You know, they, he actually said, Oh, you know, he was so out of it. He said that he loved me. He wasn't talking to you. You know, he was talking to our mother because he felt his life slipping away from him. And for the medical examiner to not hear the fright, to not see that my brother was fighting for his life and doing everything that he could to try to continue to have breath in his body. And when he knew that he was dying, and from what I understand, Humans, we know somehow from what I've heard, it seems to be that we know when we're going to leave, when we're dying. And he knew. You could hear it, and they did nothing. They they let his life slip away underneath the weight of their bodies, with no disregard. Let's take a breather. Let's take a. What about letting my brother breathe? You knew you were putting him in that restraint. The way that you were straining him, you knew that you were impeding his ability to breathe but you know you didn't think that you needed to go ahead and allow him to be able to catch his breath to take a breather while you three grown adults are you know i don't know trying to prove a point that this young black male's not going to overpower you because he's trying to breathe no I, I, it's, it's it's it's
2: extremely upsetting i i, I do apologize it's 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 no apologies <laughs> i um First of all, thank you, LaToya, for sharing and talking about it. I think that we don't acknowledge enough what it means that we ask um, victims of police violence to share their pain with all of us in order to try to make our society a little bit more just. Um, There's no other sort of victim community that has to uh, put their pain on display in that way for us to provide them with access to the courts. And so thank you for that. And please don't ever apologize. Um, But I want to lift up something that you just said, which is, again, going back to how, you know, part of what happened here is the Office of the Medical Examiner adopted the police narrative events and identified with the police narrative events rather than the evidence, which was that three adults chased tased and pinned down you know a maybe 160 pound teenager with their weight even after he was handcuffed and instead of acknowledging that causal relationship between the police actions and Anton's death the office of the medical examiner repeated false claims that the police started making about maybe Anton had smoked uh, marijuana least with something. They were repeating, you know, allegations that the police were making about his conduct and then going out of their way to say police use of force or restraint was not a contributing cause of death, relying instead on heart conditions, which are actually really normal and typical. A lot of people have them. And even going so far as to say that one of the contributing causes of death was bipolar disorder, which is a psychiatric condition that no reasonable medical person would ever say caused caused someone to lose their life. I mean, I think part of what's so striking to me is, you know, part of what's so important is just going back to the story that is told about what happened and how police get to define that narrative from the very beginning. And that is part of what we are I hope starting to really actually take on as in a mainstream American society, right? Is that from the very literally during the video, the officer's story about Anton starts changing after they realize that something is is maybe not right and maybe he's not okay and they start talking more. About superhuman strength somebody else mentions maybe he had he was on drugs of some kind and then that immediately becomes the narrative that's put out in the world except it is true because it's coming from law enforcement because it's coming from the government and then from that moment on it's a battle from families and community members to force the media and the other government institutions to um to adopt a more critical eye, that actually considers there's another, that's not the only version of what happened and that there's a self-interested version being promoted. I said it before I had a chance to mention it,
1: Sonia, because that is something that I believe they were very methodical in the information that they put out, um, I would say, in 24 hours or less of Anton's murder, um, where they wanted to spin the narrative to say that it was basically, it was his fault that he, he was killed that it was his fault um, to try to not to be able to garner support. I really believe that they were trying to stop people from actually picking up the story. They were trying to prevent any type of public support. that spinning a just a, a, a untrue and disgusting narrative, you know, to accuse him of kidnapping a family member, you know, because who's going to want to touch a story. If you're being accused of kidnapping a little 12 year old kid, you know, And then as the the story comes out, then people find out, oh, he knows this child. This child knows him. This was not the situation that was actually given out by police officers. These were two friends um, that knew each other, that had a destination that they were going to. They were going to our mother's house. My mother was home. You know, my mother lived in a modest place. There's no way that anyone could come into her home and hide anywhere, you know, it's so I mean that narrative. We knew immediately as soon as we heard it that it, it was BS. I'm sorry for a lack of better words. That's exactly what it was. It was BS. But it was methodical, and we knew it from the beginning that it, that's what they were doing. That was their intent to try to keep it quiet and to sweep everything under the rug.
0: And I would also ask, what do you think as as you know as we are still on this journey for that accountability for Anton Black? what would you say to either elected officials or to other Marylanders who are listening to this about things that they can do and things that they need to be thinking about to to take action to support this cause?
3: Well, I would say one of the biggest wins that we were able to get in the 2021 Maryland General Assembly was the passage of Anton's law. That law will allow for the public disclosure of police investigatory records. And so I think one of the kind of short-term immediate next steps will be making these public information requests because too often we observe in the legislature as to how police brutality is described. It's reduced to a Baltimore city problem or even a Prince George's County issue. But I think what we'll find is all over the state of Maryland, police have engaged in many of the abuses. And I think we, we often talk about police killings, but there's also, you know, brutality, you know, that doesn't lead to death. We're talking about, you know, harassment, you know, we're talking about, you know, false imprisonment, like all different kinds of abuses that are in, in black life day to day. We're going to find out more information about that. And I think that will help spur additional momentum for us to make even more meaningful changes to law enforcement than we than what we were able to do in the 2021 General Assembly. I
1: think a lot of the lawmakers have made positive steps in the right direction with the police reform package they put together and were mostly successful in getting passed, even though there were some that were vetoed, So, um, including Anton's law. But um, the lawmakers, they went ahead and the General Assembly went ahead and voted the veto down. So the package in a whole was, I would say, successful. But it's not enough. It's, it's definitely not enough. It's a step in the right direction, but they need stronger laws. And now, from what I can tell, it seems to me that the politicians seem to be driven by the constituents. They, The more they hear from the constituents um, one way or the other is more than likely going to sway their decision making when it comes to drafting laws and also signing them, putting them through, um voting on them for approval. So in my opinion, I, I just think they just need to continue the conversation, still continue to look at, listen to the black and brown communities. I would just say for the Maryland lawmakers, you know, thank you for listening. Thank you for standing up for doing the right thing. Thank you very much for, you know, actually voting down those vetoes and and taking in consideration what not only you've been seeing what's been going on nationwide, but also what has occurred in your own state, you know, from my brother, Anton Black, to Freddie Gray, to you know, Corinne Gaines, to uh, Tyrone West. I mean, just the names that keep going on and on and on. And the seed something happened, and there's so many people that have been fighting for so long for a change. Thank you. But we need more. We need more from you. So definitely consider continue this conversation and work together with your communities and the activists and other legislators to, to make sure that we can have police reform where I don't have to be afraid whether or not my husband will make it in at night. You know, I don't have to be afraid if I have another brother interact with police officers, will he have a positive interaction or, Um, Will he have a negative interaction?
2: I agree with everything Latoya said. I think part of what was so, one of the really important lessons of the last several years is that investment in long-term organizing and power building and Black-led organizing, Black and Brown solidarity efforts, like, and, and really coming together to challenge sort of the white supremacy that exists in our laws and in our institutions. And I think, you know, one of the things that, we can all be doing absolutely is engaging with our elected officials. But I think it it is it goes even deeper than that to sort of what we're doing every time we pick up the paper or, I guess, read online and questioning the narratives that were fed to make sure that so if I see an article in the paper that's describing an incident in which somebody was killed by police and the first line tells me about the person's criminal history st- checking that right stopping and saying like wait why does that need to be here in this first line or questioning sort of the narrative that's offered about a weapon okay somebody had a knife officer there were four officers who had guns why is this being set up this way and 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 questioning questioning absolutely we need to be questioning what is being put out there by institutions that are there to that are in essence protecting themselves so you know I mean I think they the the Chauvin verdict was really felt really powerful and significant for all the reasons that Latoya articulated, but it also felt like, well, is this the system just sacrificing one of its own in order to be allowed Mm. to continue to exist in the way it always has. Right. And so I think there are ways in which we have to continue our vigilance. And this is, I think the thing that I feel very strongly about is we are talking about the need to reform policing as as an institution, but that also means reforming other institutions that reinforce our existing policing structure and the way police operate. And really, there's no government, there's no sort of aspect of our government that doesn't Relate to that. So that's the court system, that's prosecutors, that's the Office of the Medical Examiner, that's how we allocate resources to our communities um, so that there are alternatives besides police, so that there are adequate mental health supports. So, you know, all of those things reinforce how we utilize police in this country.
0: Did want to ask you both to react to just like a small thing related to Officer Webster because uh, let's say you brought up a really good point about officers being held accountable for like when they use like excessive force. But Webster, when he left, um, he, he came from Delaware, um, was banned from policing related to how he had treated the citizens of Delaware. Can you just talk a bit about that and also how the community has been working? to hold Webster accountable even before he even came there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, knowing that certain state agencies speak to each other, uh, especially when you have states that, you know, are close proximity, you have Delaware and Maryland, um, they're they're states that actually border each other. Um, There are certain state agencies that actually communicate with each other and talk to each other. So if I or anyone else was to attempt to try to defraud a state agency, they would figure it out pretty quickly. Um, but that's something that doesn't happen when it comes to policing. And um, so with all of the national news that Webster made, the steps that Delaware took to prevent him from policing in that state going forward seemed to be lost in translation to Greensboro, Maryland. Um, if it, if the community actually came together and expressed um, great concern over his hire. Great concern over what they thought was an attempt to militarize the police in their little community. And of, of course, great concern about how the black and brown residents of that community would be affected, um, even though they're such a small number of that community. And the town hall, the town manager, they completely disregarded everything that was said. They, it, it, even the Greensboro chief of police hid Webster's use of force record from the Maryland Commission so that he could actually, you know, be certified to police in the state of Maryland. So there were a lot of people who just did not take in consideration what were the best interests for the members of their community, in my opinion. And even though they tried to stand behind the fact that Webster, from what I understand, Petio said Webster was the best candidate for the job. I find that highly unlikely. I just don't. I can't believe that someone who another, your neighboring state has prevented, and we know Petio knew what was going on.
0: Listener note Michael Petio is a white man, and he is the Greensboro police chief.
1: Petio was from Camden, Delaware himself. Um, Dover and Camden are two towns that actually border each other. So there's no way that the Greensboro police chief did not know who Webster was and was unfamiliar in the kicking of the young man in the face. Like he, he knew what was going on and he purposely hid that information from the Maryland Commission just to go ahead and, and I think it was like a good old boy system. He, he got someone in the door that he probably, and I'm, I'm speculating, but I wouldn't find it hard to believe that he hadn't interacted in his own policing career here in the state of Delaware. States, our area is kind of small, even um, <laughs> hard to believe. Pettyo pulled my husband over one time before Anton was murdered, and um, after Anton was murdered, my husband said he was taken to court, and I think Petio saw the last name and thought and said, "Never mind, I'm not going to show up." Um, so, I mean, with the areas being so small, I'm, I'm positive he knew what was going on, but it was a complete disregard. No one, no, it seemed like they didn't care. And anton knew too anton was very familiar with what was going on. He knew exactly who Webster was, so I'm not surprised that he was frightened when he had in his first encounter with Webster um because he knew who he was dealing with. He actually brought it to the attention of our mother. He let her know that he was coming to town and you know how everyone was trying to fight to, to prevent to from um gaining employment
2: i i um I want to. Just make sure that anyone who's listening knows a little bit about the background we're talking about here, which is that, so Officer Webster was really the officer who um, initially had the encounter with Anton and then escalated it very rapidly. He was somebody who had worked in Delaware, had had almost, I think, two dozen write-ups for relating to his uses of force, had actually been criminally charged in Delaware for an incident when he shattered a man's jaw and ultimately left Delaware, settling a case where he agreed that he would never seek Reinstatement as a police officer with the Dover police again. To Latoya's point, Dover is, I think, about 30 minutes from where Officer Webster Took his his new job and actually like the NAACP reached out of Dover in Delaware, the central NAACP reached out to alert community members to their concerns about Officer Webster. And then it was Black residents who tried to get largely white officials to take seriously the concerns they had about Officer Webster coming to the community. And it's really Shocking, I think. Uh, you know, I mean, it says something about the sort of institutional racism, structural racism, that all of those concerns were minimized, disregarded. And then Officer Webster went on to, in the weeks preceding his taking of Anton's life, seriously assault another young boy and remain on the force. And now, just to carry it through, All of that happened. The town was warned. The public officials were warned. They said, we're going to do it anyway. We're giving Officer Webster a second chance. That was the actual language that they used. And then he took a child's life. And now they're defending the lawsuit against him and saying he didn't do anything wrong. We didn't do anything wrong. How is that a good how is that acceptable? How is that okay for for any government to do? It's just it's. It's, I lose words because it seems so um, so wrong and so broken on so many different levels. And I
1: was able to see um, the, I, I believe it was the town officials apologize to George Floyd and, you know, his family for what Chauvin did. And this is before the trial, you know, was, had actually come to a conclusion. Um, I think, I believe it was before it even began. And we've never gotten an apology. We've never gotten, and I'm I'm sorry, we've always just gotten, um, like Sonia said, we've done nothing wrong, you know? Uh, like, they're all geared, caught in headlights. Like, they, they didn't see the writing on the wall um, when they were warned time and time again. Even the news um, outlets for that area ran stories about it. So just the, the blatant disregard, it's disgusting. It's disgusting, and the fact that the mayor at that time personally knew Anton, and I, I just, I don't know how you could know him, you know, and and invite him into your home and let him sit at your table and eat dinner with your your kids and your wife, and and then look his family in the face and 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 not even say, you know, we we messed up. We're sorry. You know, we never got and I know they were covering their own behind. You know, they they probably their council probably told them not to say anything to us. But, you know, they're extremely hurtful. Um, my mother is still hurt to this day. Um, and like I said, I don't even think he's the mayor of Greensboro anymore. But she she'll never forget that they were neighbors at one time. Um, they actually live diagonally from each other. So he know exactly who Anton He You know, i very well, very well. His kids went to school with him. And to just, just sit there and pretend like you know you, or to you know act like well we, it's more important just to, to save my own skin. That's what we got as a family. We want to try to stay face as much as possible instead of just you know copping to um, that we we made a, a bad decision.
2: I I, um, I absolutely agree. I mean I think it's not just. That it's been denial from the very beginning. And again, I want to just point out how all of these different institutions have worked together to have that result, right? So at no point did any of these institutions say, did any of the people who are responsible for, for investigating what happened stand up and say, wait a second, this didn't this shouldn't have happened this way, right? So going back to it, it was the, you know. The Maryland State Police investigated, I use air quotes, the, uh, mm-hmm. the death of of Anton. They relied on the autopsy and the reports in the, by the medical examiner denying a causal relationship between police actions and Anton's death. And then the town officials all relied on that, you know, sort of the very flimsy investigation and the conclusions of the office of the medical examiner to say we didn't do anything wrong. Nobody can show that Anton died as a result of the actions of our officers. And so there's no criminal case. There's no need for either for even further investigation. And that's, uh, that's just appalling that the, the Black family is continuing to need to fight for just acknowledgement just acknowledgement that Anton was killed by police um, and that his death was a homicide and not an accident or a sort of spontaneous death happening as a result of natural causes um, and that's really you know I think for all for all of the ways that we have seen steps forward with you know some of the legislative reforms and public outrage, the fact that that is still true today for me says is its own barometer for how we're doing here in Maryland.
1: Yeah, I think that's important. Why the uh, community oversight boards was very important as far as the reform package that was put, put through, just because I read the Maryland state police report and it it took me some time. It's over 300 pages long. It's very um, lengthy report. And I did some research to myself before, you know, the ACLU got involved and we were able to get some assistance. And uh, I know for a fact that two of those officers used to work for the Maryland state police. They, it's uh, on part of their resume. Um, Manos was a Maryland state police officer for many, many years. So when we say they're policing their own, they're policing their own. It's, there it was no different, even though, um, you know, Maryland State Police was looking at um, Greensboro, um, Centerville, and Ridgely, they're, they're still policing their own. So um, I, I'm glad to see that we were able to get some type of um, legislation put in place to have these um, community review boards, that try, try to put some more power back into the community and, and to help to hold the officers accountable, because frankly, they they don't, they don't, and for so the ones that I believe, I believe there are some officers that, that do want to do the right thing. I, I'm not going to, you know, we're not an a anti-police family. We're That's not who we are. And we're not naive to the fact that I'm certain that there are officers who want to do the right thing, but can't because they're afraid. You know, they're the, the culture, the police culture. And we have family members who are police officers. So we're not just, you know, we're not speaking um, out of turn, you know, I, I know what I'm talking about, to be afraid not to have someone back you up because you spoke out against one of your fellow officers that was doing something, you know, that um, was unbecoming of a, a, a police officer. Um, that's a pretty scary thing. I, I, I definitely, I couldn't imagine, you know, having to make a decision whether to do the right thing for someone else Or do I have to think about my own family and make sure that I have the protection that I need when I go on these dangerous calls? So, I mean, it's kind of like a double, two-edged sword, you know. I I think that if we do work on that as well to help those officers have certain protections in place, then maybe we can also get the good guys to start speaking up more often, you know, who are currently within, um, instead of waiting for them to lose their jobs. Um, because they were fired or whatever the reason that's for them to actually have an opportunity to to say what was going on, um, so that they can have those protections um, while they're still in uniform.
0: Also David, can I can't get you just to just reflect a bit on the fact that it took, in many, you know, many ways, a person being killed by police outside of Maryland, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, to you know produce this amount of change versus... You know, right here in Baltimore, we had Freddie Gray. We had, you know, the uprising that happened, and all the things that uh, spilled from that. Can you just can you uh, can you help some of our listeners wrestle with those two uh, contradictions that, in some ways, the system is happening around police reform.
3: Yep, and and I really appreciate that question because there are two things that I've been thinking a lot about lately. Um, to that end, the first is, you know, if we're honest. It, we're clear that we're in a moment where racial and social justice provides social capital that people utilize for their own kind of personal and professional interests. And I would argue that much of the impetus behind the kind of more mainstreaming of the effort around police accountability work, both in Maryland and around the country has to do with that. And a part of the, and, and some people would say, well, what's wrong with that? You get it done how you get it done. But a part of the impact is that it creates an environment where issues of racism and how it operates, folks are responding to the spectacles of violence. They're not responding to the structures that produce them. And and that was a big part of what we were dealing with during the the Maryland General Assembly. You know, the, the Maryland Coalition for Justice and Police Accountability One of the big things we were fighting for was around community oversight of law enforcement. So in repealing the law enforcement officer bill of rights, which allowed police to structure the nature of discipline exclusively in their control. We were hoping that a part of what the legislature would allow jurisdictions to do is to establish external community based and control entities, the the ability for them to discipline officers that harm the community. And that's not what we got. We got more civilian participation in the kind of in the police discipline process, but not in a community control entity. And anyone who looks at the history of uh, police accountability work, much of it emerging from the middle 60s um, and late 60s, where there were urban rebellions around the United States, many of them were the result of police killings of Black people, and that would emerge from both the traditional historic civil rights organizations and even more radical organizations, Black Panther Party for Self-Defense and other kinds of even more radical organizations, one of the common calls was for community control and oversight of law enforcement. And so excluding that, in my estimation, it, it undermines the ability to characterize what Maryland did as racial justice, right? It was progress. When We talk about racial justice, we have to be it's about shifting power into the hands of the community. And so so I think on one front, that's that's one place where just reflecting on the fact, as you said in your question, that it took the killing of George Floyd, it being uh, filmed, it being circulated nationally. Um, because if it were the case that a killing of a black person by police is what sparked it all by itself without the kind of national outcry, then as you mentioned, a lot of these changes would have happened a lot sooner. The other thing I also wanna make it a point to say that I think is particularly important is as we're, you know, courting this, there's conversations about the system of Bryant Um, who was killed by police. And one of the things that I want to tie into the question because I think it's important. You know, as Black people, we have been often encouraged to plead to larger society for our humanity. We've often been encouraged to, we have to be the most moral. We have to, you know, we have to appeal to the sensibilities of white folks when we talk about getting justice for Black folks. And, For me, what's particularly important is the fact that as Black people, you know, we should seek control of the institutions that govern our lives. When a police officer shows up in a situation where there are a bunch of adults present and young people, right, and there's a conflict, it is the lives of the people in that community that should take priority. And any anybody, you know, the Makaya Bryant, you know, should not have been killed. That's a situation where our own community should have the infrastructure to deal with that on our own terms. That situation speaks to to the harm of having police as the primary instrument of public safety. Right. And I think we should be clear because the folks that I think are second guessing or defending, the uh, the actions of of that of the officer that shot her I I think have internalized the kind of respectability politics that I think encourage folks to see the pathway for liberation for black people through being respectable enough and pleading hard enough for white folks recognition of our humanity um and I think many of the people who have been killed in Maryland Um, you know, whether it's Freddie Gray, whether it's Corinne Gaines, you know, whether whether, you know, other folks who they don't they don't meet the respectability politics that I think too many of us have internalized. If we're serious about respecting black life, we have to respect all black life on its own terms. Um, And so it goes back to the first point I made that unfortunately calls for police accountability and social justice have been co-opted by folks that don't actually value black people's lives. But fortunately, enough, fortunately enough, we're in a moment where those of us that do value Black people's lives can pressure institutions like the legislature to do more toward that end than previously.
0: What do you think are some of the key elements that we we as you know, as Marylanders um, and you know lawmakers and other public officials need to be thinking about to create a public safety system that actually protects? Black lives, what would that in,
1: in your ideal
0: world, what would that look like?
1: You would definitely have to have officers who, who are not biased. I mean, with necessarily you can have a um, officer who is a bigot, you know, and if he's um, a bigot, he may, you know, um, treat a Black or brown, or not may, they do. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reverse that because it's not may, they do. I mentioned in another interview, you know, we have officers who are, you know, in their uniforms who are putting up the white supremacy fine. You, and, and it's being documented. It's being caught, captured. And I, I mean, in order for us to get a, bear, a fair shot in policing, um, there has to be, a, uh, I would say the police chiefs, the captains, they, they need to take it more seriously as far as um, the vetting process of who they're hiring, in my opinion, um, instead of just taking any warm body that comes through the door. You know, because Anton wanted to be one of those warm bodies to come through the door. He wanted to be a law enforcement officer, you know, and then look what's happened there. He's never going to have the opportunity to serve his community the way that he wanted to. I think some people would say we would want to see more black officers in our community, but um, if they're not going to do the right thing, we don't want them either. I I don't want an officer that looks like me that's going to police me the same, you know, the same as his white counterpart and, and use the same type of thoughts. You know, I, I've heard like NYPD said, you know, don't treat them like animals. You know, and when I heard them say that, don't treat us like we're animals, and I'm like, well, that's how you look at us, like we're animals. You know, don't don't we need officers that can relate to us not disengage from us, but they need to be able to see us as people. They need to be able to see me as someone that could be their mother, their sister, their cousin, their auntie, instead of looking at me or another black or brown person as a threat or, you know, an opportunity to, you know, move up within the police department because of the number of arrests that I've made and and, and the, the drug busts I've made and so forth. I'm gonna leave that there. He's (laughs) fine. He has something to say. No, it's. I
2: I think you know it's so hard to answer because I think I'm not sure that we've yet imagined what policing could be, what 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 public safety could be that truly protects Black and Brown people. And I I think you know I, I tend to think much more conceptually, and I guess zoom out and say, like I feel like we need a complete structural overhaul in our imagining of what safety looks like, what it means, and what contributes to safety. And so I think, again, I go back to this question of who's getting resources, who's getting, whose neighborhoods are getting resources. I mean, part of the history of policing and part of the current iteration of policing is that it's used to protect property. Right. It's used to protect Mm -hmm. property. It's used to exclude black and brown people from where we are not wanted. And I think for that reason, part of reimagining public safety and safety of black and brown people has to be asking really fundamental questions that go beyond sort of these changes that we need in the sort of immediate term to, you know, because while we continue to have the structures that we have in place, to think like what could safety look like? What could protecting each other and helping commu- uh, us helping each other stay safe? What could that look like without requiring the kind of state violence that's inherent in our existing system?
3: So, so I want there kind of a couple of things I want to say to that. The first is that to, you know it's important to you know provide context the criminal justice system, the prison system, as it exists in the West is at odds with what has existed in world history. The level of punishment and brutality what you know, what some intellectuals and academics call the carceral state is something beyond what human history has ever seen. And so it's important that we're able to put that in perspective because I think there are many of us being socialized in this society can't imagine a world without law enforcement or the criminal justice system, right? That it's normalized, but it's important for us to know. And unfortunately, many of us haven't learned about or been taught about the history of advanced societies outside of Western civilization. Because if you look at ancient African civilizations or ancient indigenous societies that are here, what we call the Americas, have advanced civilizations that had that didn't have prisons, right? They're, they're languages that don't have the word jail because they didn't need them, right? And so as John Henry Clark once said, and so, so that's one piece is to put that in perspective so that as we talk about alternatives to policing, that people are clear that it's not some radical wish that has never materialized itself. But in fact, the world as we're living it is actually abnormal and at odds with the rest of advanced civilizational world history. So one of the, one of the calls that's emerging is defund police, um, defund the police, which which is something that you know it's been a conversation that's been happening in certain circles for a while, but it's picked up steam particularly in many of the kind of nonprofit adjacent advocacy spaces, right? And it's hit the mainstream. And because police budgets have you know exponentially increased over the past several decades, as other kinds of expenses like public education or other social services have either stagnated or decreased in expenditures. So I think the call for defunding police, it's making kind of an obvious recognition of the investment in police, given the level of violence that exists in many of the cities around the country demonstrate that the increase in police budgets does not translate to safety. So a part of the work to be done is how do we create alternative institutions that provide that can that can provide the community um, approaches to public safety that don't require law enforcement? One of the things that I feel you know um, compelled to say because I think it's very important. I, I imagine many of the folks who are you know listeners um, to, you know to this podcast and to this um, to this interview will have heard of defunding the police, and I imagine there'll be an audience that's likely to be sympathetic to that demand. One of the things that I want to, I want to urge people to think about though, is that, because I've heard conversations about taking money from police and putting it into social services, right? Putting into, you know, you know, social programs. And it's very important that we're clear. One of the things LBS has talked a lot about is the nonprofit industrial complex and how many of the institutions that are responsible for, um, socializing young people and dealing with many of the afflictions that black people face are controlled by folks not only from our communities, right? They're controlled by major institutions, mostly white, mostly folks who consider themselves elite Many, Many of my elders and mentors refer to the folks who study black oppression um, almost exclusively um, as Negroologists, right? People that, you know, can tell you all the different kind of social afflictions of black people, but have not immersed themselves in the methodologies and approaches to socializing our young people are dealing with our afflictions that come from the bodies of work that come from our own communities. And what has happened is that many of those institutions have eroded over the past 50 to 60 years as these kind of major nonprofits have come in and taken up the role of structuring, you know, public education, social work, public health those institutions aren't of and from our communities. And so it's eviscerated in some respects, or at least eroded, many of the containers that existed in our communities that provided that socialization, provided those ways of dealing with our afflictions. And so I say that to say that one of the important things for those who are supporters of the notion of defunding police, right? Which again, I think it's a pretty natural impulse given how much um, is spent on policing. Institutional formation, where black folks are building the institutions and that we control the institutions that are the alternatives for public safety. There are lots of mainstream, big box, corporate, not white led nonprofits that are salivating at the opportunity for the police to be defunded and for money to go into the traditional human service entities. They may hire a few extra black folks, but the methodologies that they use to actually serve our people are gonna be the same methodologies of human service, that perpetuate white supremacy, that are paternalistic, that project notions of inherent criminality. And if you look at any of the major fields, I've mentioned education, social work, and public health as examples, look at any of those fields. And what's happening now is that those fields are dealing with a reckoning, where those industries are recognizing that their practices are actually harmful, not just not effective, but harmful to those that they serve. And so it is my hope that as we talk about defunding police, we're also talking about institutional formation, where Black folks from the community are able to build the infrastructure and create governance that allows the community to hold it accountable so that the alternatives that are funded, that are invested in, the alternatives to police that are being invested in are actually investments in the community and not investment in nonprofits that are seeing the defund police phenomena as an opportunity for their budgets to get bigger and to support the livelihoods of folks that are profiteering off the suffering of Black people.
0: I, I think you speak to something really fundamental of if we expect the how can we respect something to look different or better for people if the people who are supposed to impact are not in the control and in the creation of of it from the from its inception and then maintaining the system move, um, moving forward so um Dave, let me also ask you this for people who want to educate themselves on you know what they should be thinking about how they should be talking to their family members and their friends and their elected officials. Um, do you have any resources that they can um, start that, that be thinking?
3: Um, so there are two things that actually come to mind. One, there's an interview that Lawrence Graham Prix did for um, black power media yeah, where okay. he talks about defund police. Um, and then for the issue, particularly when I talk about the human social service sector and what we should invest in, There's a publication that we put out, that LBS put out in 2019 called When Baltimore Awaits. So I think that's something that I would suggest people read to give them a sense of what we mean when we talk about um, different kinds of social institutions that actually respect the humanity of Black people and not the ones that, you know, the kind of traditional welfare, human service entities um, that exist.
0: For our listeners, I will put both of those things in the description of this podcast. Thank you, Davon and Latoya and Sonia for taking the time to talk to us on Thinking Freely today. This conversation gave me a lot to think about, particularly as the ACLU works to create an equitable justice system. And I hope next time I get to speak with y'all, we can talk about how more progress has been made as we create a public safety system that actually works. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Thinking Freely. If you like Thinking Freely, make sure to leave a review and subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. This show was recorded on Piscataway Native American land. I'm Amber Taylor, the host and producer of Thinking Freely. Till next time.